This is podcast number 311, entitled Crescendo, and you've just heard um, the opening credits of the movie Crescendo, a Hammer psychological thriller, Hammer Studios from England, psychological thriller from 1970, and the credits uh, were written by um, Sir Malcolm Williamson, and the saxophone solo by Tubby Hayes, who was a famous jazz player in England at the time. And yesterday, John Zoll, during a Bible study, gave a, uh, actually it was during a sermon, gave a lengthy uh, illustration in the early part of the sermon, and he said, now hang on, I know this is, I'm going somewhere with this. He said, I'm going somewhere with this. And John said it in such emphatic ways that the listener actually did give him permission to sort of let the illustration play out in order for it to have its maximum impact. In other words, we agreed because John said it so um, touchingly and so frankly that the illustration would seem overlong, but it would be worth it. Well, this um, podcast is actually uh, based on the movie Crescendo from 1970. And I'm going to tell you the actuality of it, and I'm not going to worry about what today is called spoiler alerts because the movie is 50 years old. I'm, people will say, you know, they'll they'll give the synopsis of the play um, The Tragedy of King Richard III by Shakespeare, and then they'll say, spoiler alerts. You know, he gets killed at the Battle of Bosra Field. And I want to say, spoiler alerts for something that ancient and well-known? Well, um, Crescendo is not well-known, but it is a little ancient. And the... Um, um, script of Crescendo by Jimmy Sangster is so evocative. The movie is not an A movie. It's about a B plus, but it's still quite effective in its idea. And what is happening in this particular thriller, which is a kind of um, repeat of several other uh, famous thrillers, but in a very particular way, um, is actually what's happening in our world today and in the world of God and man and demons and um, possessed uh, persons and suppressed persons and uh, free persons and autonomous people and people of faith and people of um, yoke, Y-O-K-E in the negative sense. And so I tell the story of the movie briefly, do allow you to um, understand what I really want to say about the present day uh, in two respects, uh, two two ways that are absolutely eye-opening. And while I was uh, watching an extraordinary sermon slash extended prayer by Pastor Paula White this week in the aftermath of the election. She has been doing a series of prayer meetings at uh, our church um, in uh, Apopka, Florida, and um, City of Destiny. And the power of what she was doing, coupled with the fact that she is so radically singled out for derision and attack, especially now, although it's almost always been true in the last few years, but especially at this moment, as I was watching this remarkable, inspired, albeit, um, you might say, very minority view, um, singular prayer, unique even in our times, the movie Crescendo came into my mind. Now, I felt that was of God. How did this psychological thriller from 1970 by Hammer Studios in England come into my mind as I was listening to Paula's unique and extraordinarily unusual prayer? Well, I have to tell you a little bit about Crescendo and then say the two ways in which it seems to have anticipated, together with the movie Psycho, almost all of Agatha Christie's um, detective stories, whether it's Miss Marple or Hercule Poirot or Independence standalone novels and stories of hers, or almost any um, uh, psychological 
thriller you can name, and I, I think I can name quite a few, only a small beginning, you will see the um, uh, power of what Pastor Paul was actually doing and what the power of what's actually happening in the world, uh, the power of what is really going on or might be regarded as an insight from the Holy Spirit into what's going on. Now, in Crescendo, the very beautiful American actress Stephanie Powers plays a young woman who is uh, doing a doctoral degree in America on the music of a dead uh, but famous English composer, and she goes to the house where he lived uh, in uh, the south of France, where his widow and a son of his and a two sort of household servants live. It takes place in 1970. And um, she uh, begins to fall in love with the son of the man, the deceased composer whom she is studying, and the son of the lady who is running now the house, the widow. And yet, um, she something is strange, something is odd about the house. She um, seems to, in the minds of the people there, to resemble a <clears throat> first wife of the uh, son she is interested in, uh, who is actually in a wheelchair. He had a terrible accident many years before and is you know, confined to a wheelchair. And something odd is happening. She keeps hearing the people playing the piano in the, the living room at night, and she keeps thinking that maybe she sees somebody else floating around the house, but she it's not clear, and there's a subplot and another subplot, but something is quite wrong. And what we find out is, and we have no idea, that's the point I want to make, the viewer... The viewer simply objectively watching the story as it plays out through the eyes of the very wonderful, um, appealing heroine played by Stephanie Powers. We have no idea. We are as in the dark as she about the realities. Well, um, in a remarkable twist and turn of events, um, we discover that the man in the wheelchair has a, well, it looks like a doppelganger, but is in fact his twin brother. And his twin brother lives in the house also far away. This is sort of a Jane Eyre type theme, you know, where where um, uh, Rochester's first wife, no one is allowed to know about the fact that she exists and she is living in a mental state of complete psychosis in a sort of little cell in another part of the castle. There's a little bit of this in some of Daphne du Maurier's novels, especially Rebecca, uh, but it's a familiar theme in which somebody else is there that no one knows who is actually driving the whole show. And it turns out that the um, the uh, twin brother uh, shot the uh, brother whom Stephanie Powers has been falling for in the wheelchair for having an adulterous affair with his, the other brother's wife. And... Um, paralyzed him from the waist down, and he still lives. This psychotic, crazy, angry, shotgun-toting um, twin is all part of a mammoth conspiracy, which is very much favored by and um, participated in by his mother, the widow, to really um, somehow um, get some kind of psychological catharsis uh, um, for the brother who was wounded. And all of a sudden, and near the end, uh, Stephanie Powers looks and she sees her, her, the man she loves, she believes, in a wheelchair, and then she looks at the opposite side of the sort of swimming pool where this action is taking place. It's very beautifully set. And uh, she sees the same man, but standing up. And, and you and Stephanie, we are on what is happening? Well, it turns out 
about, that there's this huge backstory of which we, the viewers, and Stephanie Powers were completely unaware that is driving absolutely every single iota of the action based upon another reality altogether and a person we've never seen. Now, remember Psycho. Um, Psycho was all about a murder mystery that involved a mother of a, of a sort of a Freudian mother who was jealous of her son, played by Anthony Perkins, who went around killing uh, people that uh, Anthony Perkins was drawn to. And uh, it turned out that Anthony Perkins was his mother, that he had himself killed his mother in a terrible, adulterous situation and had put her as skeleton in a bed upstairs and would periodically put on his mother's clothes and go into a fugue-like state of identification with his mother and, and act out his mother's um, rage, or his, uh, but in um, a completely different persona, personality. Well, that's a familiar theme. In other words, something was going on that we are completely shocked by when we find out that it's happening, but it's been happening the whole time, and it's in fact the driving force. You'll see this in another, all sorts of movies I could name. I could name about ten right on the spot. John Glover, paging John Glover. Wonderful John Glover. Well, um who's helping me and working alongside me on the uh, Mockingbird list of uh, Turner Classic movies every month that we now do with a special Mockingbird appeal. Now, what this movie uh, noted as I watched Paula and regarded her, the remarkably uh, vitriolic attacks on her uh, for some of the things she has said where she has been summoning angels to assist in um, uh, restoring justice to both the country and to the church, restoring equity and fairness, <clears throat> however you want to define it, and uh, I won't put it in partisan terms, but she has been praying up a storm with extraordinary passion and singular illustrative uh, ability and uh, um, panache, and really, in my opinion, uh, inspired brilliance. Um, as I was hearing her, and everybody can't abide they, when she talks about summoning angels and principalities and powers and dominions, and she talks about demonic confederacies and networks, and they, they say, well, you know, this woman is crazy. This woman is a fanatic. This woman is completely, totally uh, mental. Th th these are the exact same people that, when they were younger, paid money every time any one of these movies like uh, Crescendo or Psycho or Hitchcock's there are several others, Frenzy, came out. And uh, they've never made the connection with the fact that the entire history of... Uh of mysteries, whether psychological or sheerly uh, circumstantial, the entire history of the genre of the mystery, you know, this is what the theologian Karl Barth lived for, you know, he, he wrote these books in the daytime and at night the only thing he wanted to do, well there were a couple things, but the thing he said he wanted to do was to read Agatha Christie. And it was sort of, it became sort of a kind of an iconic uh, idea that theologians had to follow in his footsteps by having some kind of um, interest in something along those lines. But I want to say, well, Karl Barth, I mean, it's the same thing. When you think theologically about what's going on in the world and attempt to understand biblically the real realities, the backstory of human existence, which involves, in fact, God sent his son into the world, not that the world might be condemned, that the world might be saved through him, and that uh, this uh, was planned before the ages and Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2 and St. Paul, excuse me, 
looking up at these massive uh, cosmic struggles that are actually happening, of which our struggles here are simply the kind of, uh, we're like chess pieces very often in a cosmic struggle in another plane, and you attack her when um, every, um, I can just give you case after case after case of these great mystery writers um, who are... Um, what is that guy, uh, that other very famous French one with the wonderful detective? It'll come back to me. Uh, Maigret. Uh, they're all about uh, investigators who don't accept uh, things as they appear and look for a motivating force to the action that no one has hitherto seen. And in Agatha Christie novels, she specifically uh, arranges the, check, uh, the, 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 the chess pieces so that at a particular point near the end, she gathers them all together and she shows us that the, that the villain... We we would le the person we would least expect is invariably the person who actually has been driving the entire action and is the criminal. Well, and we criticize Paula for thinking in those terms and seeing those terms. All she is doing is in a far deeper and far more majestic and, and uh, magisterial way um, uh, pointing to biblical truths of a higher struggle. Uh, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of this present darkness. We cast down the imaginations, as Elder Harold, my real beloved friend and mentor, would say, and we attack her when it's obvious. Now, let me give you another example. Um, you know how much I love Dennis Wheatley, the rather sort of verbose and, and somewhat awkward writer of massively successful um, occult thrillers in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. And um, one of his, I really recommend it, is called Strange Conflict. And I think it came out in 1942 in England. And in it, the premise is that the Nazis are um, sinking uh, transatlantic shipping between uh, uh, England and America. And somehow they know where the boats are. Their submarines seem to get in advance. A, they're breaking the code. And they're able to find the, the steamers and the ships carrying armaments and food to England and um, um, torpedoing them. And the hero, the Duc de Richelieu, understands that there's really something else going on on the astral plane. Now, this is a novel by a man who was a Christian, and he thought Christianly, but he was thinking here in terms of what we today would rather mild occultism. Don't, don't take that in the bad spirit. It's really very powerful and in keeping much of it with the New Testament. Remember, he's the one who taught us in the podcast how to throw a crucifix at the evil one. Throw a crucifix. Get thee behind me, Satan. It's in all his novels. These are Christian novels, um, albeit when they came out, they were a little heavy. Uh, the World War II has to be fought on the astral plane. And so the wonderful Christian Catholic um, mystic, De Duc de Richelieu, sort of gets out of body and he proceeds to fight and discover the nature of the enemy on uh, another plane. The, the, uh, not heaven, not where the Jesus Christ is seated, but on another plane where all sorts of agreements and uh, strategies are being hatched by Satan and his forces against the forces of good. We being the kind of puppet of these forces because we don't actually see what's happening. Well, I mean, Wheatley, you know how many novels he sold? Well, I'll tell you. He sold about 25 million novels in his day all over what used to be called the British Commonwealth or British Empire. Not so much here, although many movies, including here in this country, were made of his remarkable novels. Well, um, again, the idea is that what's really happening in life is happening in the unseen. But it's true of you and me. 
I mean, you and me, we are drawn, we are, we are activated by forces from, let's say, our childhood or forces of tragic things that happened to us or unjust things that happened to us when we were younger or um, traumatic losses, disappointments, uh, and even perhaps some victimizations on ourselves and our bodies that have scarred us. And we are actually operating out of uh, often in things that you wouldn't see unless you knew us well. Uh, And this is what we see in pastoral care. Why is this person being so difficult in the parish? Why is this person so angular? Why is this person so angry? Well, if you knew the unseen facts of that person's life, who was really even even be a dead person, was actually calling the shots, well, then you would understand and have compassion. Well, that's in Dennis Wheatley. It's in pastoral care. If you love somebody enough, you will all, always find, we call it baggage. I don't see the baggage. Is that actually when I say to somebody, you know, that, that poor gal has a lot of baggage or that fella has tons of baggage. Do I see the, the cases and the suitcases and the valises and the attache cases? I don't see any of them. But the baggage is calling the shots. They are what's weighting him down. And in the powerful um, a sort of what's today called a trope of crescendo of the 1970s movie, an unseen reality which is actually focused in a diabolical individual and a number of other people who are sort of aiding and abetting this diabolical individual allow uh, a completely innocent outsider to be captivated and almost murdered. Fortunately, it was made in an era before they had become nihilistic, and it has a, not a happy ending, but the, the villain is uh, destroyed and the, um, the girl is, escapes. Uh, with her life, thank God, and it, it, it's a, a, love, a, a, pro, a proper ending. Now, um, so who are we to attack uh, ipso facto um, Paula for describing uh, spiritual uh, forces, what Christians often call spiritual warfare, that is happening unseen in relationship, for example, to the aftermath of a general election? Why should we immediately, in principle, attack her for not, quote, accepting reality. Well, it always turns out that reality is not what we see. Crescendo teaches that. Psycho, for heaven's sake, with Janet Leigh and, uh, and Tony uh, Perkins and uh, is it John Gavin, I think he's in it, um, teaches us that what we see and what is actually happening are very seldom the same. And a lot of the times, we don't see it at all. We suddenly wake up in the middle of a situation and we say, oh my gosh, that's what was happening. What was happening was he really was in love with some other person and that caused him to be so obnoxious or so calculating. Or he really had uh, this uh, element in his life that he was trying to be protective of and that's why he was so reserved and sort of ironic all the time and sarcastic. And we never knew. If if you'd only told me. Well, that's the power. Now, I want to finish this by saying the power of what Paula is doing right off the bat is she is, um, she is uh, seeing something. You may not agree with what she says she's seeing, but she's not actually, if you listen, she's dramatic, but she's not, except in a few cases, necessarily is saying exactly what the uh, parallel is in the here and now to what she is talking about in the real world, although she is talking about let those people who are um, intentionally hiding something or intentionally conspiring or intentionally uh, behind the scenes doing something wrong or untrue, let that be exposed. And that's perfectly legitimate and absolutely right that that we should see this. And secondly, why should we, just because one person goes against the narrative, I mean, what she's saying is completely 
completely against the narrative. I mean, I, I could say the same thing about the COVID. I have views about what's really going on in relationship to the COVID in a kind of unseen psychological world of our current life that is that are very much at odds with almost everybody I meet up here in, in uh, where I live now currently. Um, everybody I'm talking to sees the COVID almost. 99% say or imply that they see the COVID in a different light than what I see. So I just don't talk about it. But the fact is, I see other things going on with the COVID than they see. Now, should I be blamed uh, because I simply have learned from Psycho, 1961 or 60, or Crescendo, 1970, or the movie Paranoiac, <laughs> unbelievable movie with Oliver Reed? Um, should I be penalized for that? Um, for simply, um, the truth is that the truth is often hidden, and um, to the extent that no one else sees it, that is sometimes makes them one voice. And Paula is to some extent at times, I see her as sort of a singular voice, but there are others in this world. There are a few others. That is almost a testimony to the fact that it's true. Remember, everybody voted for Barabbas on Good Friday. Not, 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 there were no voices raised in defense of Jesus. Not one, not a single one. Um, everybody deserted Jesus. He was one against the world. You know, you and me against the world, Helen Reddy, 1976. Um, one man in um, Stephen King's novel, um, The Tommyknockers. Um, so if you appreciate psychological thrillers, you have to at least open the door to listening to another view of what is going on, let us say, in relationship to the aftermath of an, uh, an election where there's a tremendous amount of dicey material uh, from all sides uh, happening in the sphere of the, uh, even in the sphere purely of the internet. And secondly, you have to listen to a minority voice because in a situation like this where everybody either thinks the same or has to say that they think the same for fear of their jobs or for their fear of their reputation, then someone who has the courage to say what no one else is saying. What did, what did uh, uh, T.S. Eliot say? Um, uh, the one person who sees what is going on and is advancing towards the truth will appear to be <clears throat> insane to everyone else will appear to be running away. The person who is um, who 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 uh, sees the truth and turns towards it uh, against where everybody else is going will appear to them to be running away. Um, but in fact, he's going towards the light, and that's how I see the at least let's call it epistemologically uh, what. Um, in terms of finding knowledge, there's nothing wrong. In matter of fact, the great innovators have almost all of them, right down to Galileo, you know, and Copernicus, have almost all been exiled and uh, dis d diminished, uh, almost to the point of death, when they saw something that no one else did. Well, that's what I wanted to say, and I conclude, without wanting to give away my hand, by one of my favorite political songs, although it has no uh, direct bearing on uh, whatever you may uh, regard as important in the current situation, and that is a song from the 1952 musical starring Ethel Merman entitled Call Me Madam. It was made into a very good movie, also with Ethel Merman and George Sanders, one of great productions um, a few years later. But in the original Broadway cast, not in the movie, there was a political song. <clears throat> and the political song is entitled they like Ike. Now listen to it once, but then go back and listen to it again. And it's absolutely um, delightful. And it may, in fact, uh, shed a little bit of light on uh, the current uh, dynamics of our climate. Call me madam. They like Ike. Love you.
but they like Ike, and Ike is good on a mic. They like Ike, but Ike says he don't wanna. That makes Ike the kind of fella they like. And what's more, they seem to think he's gonna. But Harry won't get out. They're in for plenty of fights. Harry won't get out. He's got squatters' rights. But there's Ike, and Ike is good on a mic. And they know the votes that he can carry. But don't forget there's Harry. But they like Ike. And Ike is good on a mic. They like Ike. But Ike says he's not bidding. Well, that makes Ike the kind of fella they like. And what's more, they seem to think he's kidding. But Harry won't consent. He'll get a sock in the jaw. Republican president? That's against the law. If it's Ike, your chief can go on a hike. And we boys will see he doesn't tarry. They can't do that to Harry. But they like Ike. They won't take salt and stall. And staffs and chants are small. The same would go for Vandenberg and Taft. And Dewey's right in line with William Jennings Bryan. There isn't anyone that they can draft. Except for the fact that they like Ike, and Ike is good on a mic. They like Ike, but Ike says he won't take it. That makes Ike the kind of fella they like. And what's more, they seem to think he'll make it. But Harry's on the ground, and should Republicans win? When they come around, he won't let them in. If it's Ike, your chief can get on his bike, and his things a moving van will carry. They can't do that to Harry. Yes, but they, they 